Alright, we are continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm only going to go through verse 13 this morning and say verses 14 and 15 for next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In seminary, one of... For one of our Old Testament exegesis classes, we had to translate a couple of chapters of Hebrew into English each night for our homework. But then in class, we would be called on randomly by the the professor to uh, translate one or two verses uh, without using our notes. So we not only had to complete our homework of translating uh, but we also had to memorize all the unfamiliar words in the two chapters so that we would be able then to do the sight reading in class. One day in class, one of the brighter students um, noticed the structure of the passage and uh, he also noticed the word plays within the passage and he began to ask the professor about the observations that he was making. And the rest of us, who were much less bright, uh, began to catch on to what he was pointing out. And it was remarkable. In fact, the structure of the passage was so brilliant that we were all overcome with awe. The complexity of the structure, instead of making the, the passage cumbersome, made the structure beautiful while at the same time it communicated the message very simply, yet also very powerfully. Our class collectively recognized that no mere human intellect could be responsible for such a passage. We were reminded right in the middle of that class that we were reading the very handwriting of God Himself. Suddenly everyone stopped talking, and the whole class became silent. We found ourselves spontaneously worshiping God. For the structure of the passage that uh, we were translating, you know, 23, 24 years later, I can't even remember what passage it was that brought the class to a stop. But that's not what's surprising, uh, because all of Scripture has the evidence that the Bible is no mere product of human intellect. Throughout Scripture, there is the evidence that God Himself is the ultimate author of Scripture. Now, the message of Scripture is where the real life-changing power resides. Any of you from the youngest readers, or even some who are too young to be readers, and hear the word read, can pick up Scripture and by reading it or hearing it and appropriating it or applying it to your life by faith can be changed and transformed by it. In other words, you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek to experience the life-changing power of Scripture. And I wanted to take just these few minutes at the beginning of the sermon to speak about the word plays and the structure of Holy Scripture 
because the extended chiasms, and I don't have time to go into that. You can ask me after after uh, church about what all that means. The subtle word plays that carry over from chapter to chapter over the span of many chapters. Um, the complex yet clear metaphors um, and the unmistakable themes that, that are carried through uh, some of the longer books of the Bible like First and Second Kings, you know, I, as I read through, I forget what I've read two or three chapters um, previous, and I've read those books many times, and yet the writer over a long period of time had a, a particular theme that that he would weave through um, the uh, the book that he was writing, and all this demonstrates the divinity of the Bible, the complexity, yet the simplicity of the Bible makes the modern uh, writers look like kindergartners in in comparison. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, uh, James Joyce, Charlotte Bronte, we could go through a whole list of, of people. They can't begin to touch the artistry and the complexity of Holy Scripture. Shakespeare, he stands uh, head and shoulders above all the modern writers, in my opinion. He's able to pull off some complex chiasms. But even he cannot begin to touch the beauty, the complexity, the power, and also the simplicity of Scripture. And I'm not even talking about the theology or the Christ-centeredness of all of Scripture or even the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm just talking about the structure. No mere human being could do this. You know, the structure for me is, is like the watermarks on a, uh, on a, on a, a legal document. Like Owen's, uh, Owen's Law Group might uh, put a watermark kind of behind the writing, so to speak, over the whole page, property of Owen's Law Group. But when I see the complexity of structure, when I see the chiasms within the chiasms, it's like a watermark on Scripture saying, this is God's Word. Uh, I mention all this for two reasons. First, I think it's important for God's people to be reminded from time to time that Scripture is the handwriting of God. Familiarity can breed a certain contempt. Have you ever been tempted to grow bored with certain portions of Scripture because you know it so well, because you've heard it read so many times? Have you neglected Scripture because you have something better to do? In Holy Scripture, we have God's very love letter to sinful human beings like you and like me, telling us about His Son, Jesus Christ. Telling us that God so loved the world that He gave His his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I want to remind you 
of the divinity of God's Word. Secondly, I uh, make mention of this because the complex beauty of Scripture comes through in the poem that we have here in verses 2-8. through Uh, Even though many people like to recite this poem and have no idea what it means, it is so beautiful and so profound that it has become famous even in our secular culture. The baby boomers among us will uh, know the, the song from the birds in the 1960s, Turn, Turn, Turn. It's basically uh, the, this uh, passage from in Ecclesiastes chapter two, or sorry, chapter three, verses two through eight. Solomon introduces this poem by saying in verse one, "For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven." And you will remember how. He was fond of thinking, uh, of speaking about things that were under the sun. Well, he's not talking about things under the sun now. Here in verse 1, he's talking about things or every matter under heaven. And so it's significant that he has widened his scope to speak of every matter under heaven rather than talking about everything that's under the sun. If we were to peek ahead to verses 10 through 15, which we'll do a little later in the sermon, we'll see that the sovereignty of God is paramount in Solomon's mind as he writes this poem. I think it's clear that he mentions under heaven to tell us that this poem is about everything that happens in its season or in its time is under the authority of God who rules in heaven. In other words, the poem intends to tell us that God is sovereign over time and He is sovereign over everything that happens within time. No sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will and the timing of God Almighty. God governs all His creatures and all their actions. God governs you. God governs all your actions. In verse 2, we see that God has determined the exact time and circumstances of when you were born, and also He has already determined the time and the circumstances of your death. Not only that, God has determined the exact time and circumstances that will happen between your birth and your death. That's the point of the rest of the sermon. So Solomon goes on in the poem to describe everything between birth and death in a fallen world. The word time here is used 28 times in verses 2 through 8. And each stanza of this poem uses a parallel series of related opposites to show that the whole range of human life is being considered. Birth and death cover the whole range 
of human existence. And so we can look in verse 4. Weeping and laughing covers the whole range of human emotion. And we could go through the whole poem like this and see that these two parallel yet opposite terms, a time to break down and a time to build up, cover a whole range of human life and existence. It also clues us or clues us in that the whole range of human existence is being uh, being considered in this poem because there are 14 pairs of statements in the poem. 14 is double the biblical number of perfection and completion. And so, I don't think this is a coincidence that there are 14 stanzas. I think it's very intentional. God put here... 14 stanzas, and the Hebrew uh, readers at the time would have understood. They would have seen this real clearly. That 14 is doubling seven sevenths, the, the number of completion and perfection. So what is being covered here in this poem is the whole range of human existence. Alright, I know we've been in the weeds here. Let me back out of the weeds a bit and say this poem is teaching us that God is the King of time. He regulates our minutes and He regulates our seconds. He rules all our moments and all our days. In fact, if we took time to dig down a bit deeper into this poem, it would be clear that God's rule over all of history is what gives meaning to all the events of history. If God were not sovereign over all things, where could we really find meaning in history? God exercises His sovereignty over creation with a timeliness and with a precision. This implies also a specific meaning in everything He ordains. Why did He cause you to be born at the period of time on the day that you were born? Why will you die on the day that you die? Everything has a meaning because everything is rooted in God's perfect and purposeful plan. Your your life has meaning no matter how insignificant you might think you are, because you are rooted in God's very purposeful and meaningful plan. You weren't an accident. You weren't an afterthought. Nor will you ever be. At the very same time, as you examine the details of this poem, it is difficult to to discern the times here. Why did He order these 14 stanzas as He did? I can understand verse 1, birth and death. The others seem a bit random. Why did He list the time to kill and to heal ahead of the time to break down and build up? David Gibson in his commentary is helpful when he points out the form of the poem is part of the meaning of its content. In other words, he says, life is complex, full of good times, 
full of hard times, full of in-between times. The fact that there is no chronological sequence or discernible purpose to the, to the order of each of these items is itself part of Solomon's point that we have no control over any of these things. You know, if I were listing out these things, I would have listed them in a very chronological order that was very purposeful to my happiness. We make real, responsible decisions every day, says David Gibson, but in reality, we know that the seasons of life are almost completely out of our hands. There is a time for everything, but we are not arranging them on our stopwatch. What this is saying, essentially, God is sovereign over our life and over our times, and we are not. That's why he asked then in verse 9 as we transition out of the poem, he asked, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now he's asked this question already uh, earlier in Ecclesiastes, but he asked it within the context of everything being under the sun. Now he's asking it within the context of, of every, everything being under heaven. He's asking it uh, from this standpoint to recast it, recast this question with God in the equation. Or more specifically, with God as the equation. Verses 10 through, through 15, the word God appears eight times after God was basically absent in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2. And so when he asks this question again, what gain does the worker have from his toil? And he presents it within the scope of God being present and God being the sovereign ruler. He comes with, to a very different conclusion than what he came to in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Because God is sovereign over our life and times. Everything, he says in verse 11, is beautiful in its time. What was his answer in chapters 1 and 2 when he asked about our toil? His answer was vanity of vanities. But now, now he is considering life with God ruling over our lives. Everything in our life. Every little detail in our life. Because God's involved. Because God's ruling over. Everything is beautiful in its time. Listen to verses 9 through 13. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That's a far cry from vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Instead, this is a gift from God. Your life is a gift from God. The things you do is a gift from God. Enjoy them, he says. Everything 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. I want you to look at verse 11 when he says that. When he says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything in our life is beautiful because God is working out all things for our good and His glory. Romans 8.28 Everything God does is beautiful. Those who reject God's sovereignty also by implication reject the beauty of everything that God does. Many resent God's control and rule over their lives because they'd rather set their own agenda. And so it's not surprising then that they would grow frustrated with God when things don't work out according to their plans. To believe that that all that God does is beautiful takes faith. A lot that God does, although beautiful, is not pleasant. Dealing with temptation and sin is not pleasant. Mourning the death of a loved one is not pleasant. Raising a child who grows up to reject Christ is not pleasant. Growing old and suffering the arthritis, the digestive issues, and a general weakness in our muscles is not pleasant. But all these things are part of God's beautiful plan for our lives. I imagine most of us could more easily see the beauty of God's plan for our lives if we could see the big picture. But God says that's not the way it works. Faith does not demand to see the whole picture. Rather, what faith does is it casts its anchor into the One who not only knows the the full picture, but who directs the full picture. And so this is what Solomon is saying in the second half of verse 11 when he says, Also God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We were created by God for eternity. Adam and Eve fell. We still have the seeds of that desire for eternity in us. problem is, because we're sinners, we often um, turn inward and try to, to find the significance and, and, um, and, and, and eternity in our hearts. We try to find it in ourselves. We try and find it in things out in the world rather than finding our significance uh, in God. So we have this desire for eternity that remains in us, but it doesn't mean that God intends for us to know how God has ordered everything before we are called to trust Him. And I I meet people all the time. I'm not going to trust God until I know everything about whether He's going to take care of me throughout life, whether He's going to help my my poor ailing mother get out of the hospital or whatever, and we put conditions on our trust for God. Well, God doesn't allow us to know or to criticize His timing or His agenda for our lives. And so it is by faith that we trust in Him. It is by faith that we recognize that God has made all things beautiful, even if they 
are not pleasant. God intends for us to be like children who trust their parents, um, or who the children who trust their parents that their parents know best, because the parents can see things and understand things that the children are not able to see and understand. And so the child trusts in the parents who knows better for what the child needs than the child himself. One of the commentators says that God has the complete view. All we have is a point of view. Do you trust God with His timing for your life? Do you trust God with His agenda for your life? Do you trust God um, for His rule in your life? Not just His sovereignty in general, but your life in particular. If God is in control and His plans for us are always beautiful, then how should we live our lives? Verse 12, We should live with joy. He said, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So he says, if God's in control and He's making all things beautiful and your life is beautiful because He is at work in your life, then live with joy. God loves you and is working out His beautiful plan for your good. So let me ask you, are you living with joy? Are you contented with God's beautiful plan for your life? Are you able to wake up every morning and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did in my life yesterday and for what you're going to do in my life today? Verse 12 also says that we are to do good as long as we live. Obeying God's commandments not only makes us great in the kingdom, it also gives direction to our lives. We're not simply to be joyful heaps of laziness who trust in God's sovereignty. Oh, God's sovereign, I don't have to do anything. I'll go to heaven if He wants me to go to heaven. No. We are to be busy doing God's good. Again, verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So let me ask you, are you doing good for God? Are you busy for God? Is the direction of your life ordered around doing good for God or doing good for you? You might be saying at this point, well, what about the mundane daily tasks of life? Am I supposed to ignore doing the dishes? Or am I supposed to quit my job so I can do good for God? No, of course not. Look at verse 13. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, this is God's gift to man. Because God is sovereign over all of life, God wants you to recognize that the trivial, the mundane aspects of your life are good gifts to you as well. Sitting down for a meal, eating and drinking, he says we're to take pleasure in these things. These things, as mundane as they are, as regular as they are, three squares a day, 
are God's gift to us that we are to take um, pleasure in. You see how far removed from vanity, vanity, all is vanity, when God is in the picture? Because God is sovereign over all of life. There are no... Or, or even the mundane things are good gifts to you as well. Doing the dishes is a good gift from God. Working at a job is a good gift from God. Sitting down to dinner is a good gift from God. Going to a Christmas party is a good gift from God. Opening a Christmas present is a good gift for God. Probably the only pastor in America right now not preaching against the materialism of Christmas and saying it's a good gift. Although I could say a lot about the materialism of Christmas. (laughs) Enjoying a hobby is a good gift from God. Buying a new dress when you have a closet full of dresses is a good gift from God. Getting a new smartphone is a good gift from God. Throw a little love to the the teenage boys. Playing a video game is a good gift from God. You know, I've been real worried these past uh, several weeks. I've been watching the Georgia Bulldogs steamrolling over people week after week, and I'm looking forward to that national championship that I've I've been waiting for since 1980. And uh, and yet, I've been reading. Ecclesiastes, these first two chapters. Vanity of vanity, all this stuff doesn't matter. I'm saying, God, I want to take some joy in this, but I'm hoping it's going to be a national championship. And I've been struggling. And here I see in this passage, even enjoying a national championship for the Georgia Bulldogs is not just vanity, it can be a pleasure as long as it doesn't rule my life. All these things are good gifts from God. Sadly, we use these things to try and gain our satisfaction. We try and place our happiness in these things instead of finding our satisfaction and in happiness from God. You know, some of you are undoubtedly going to get a new smartphone for Christmas. It wasn't intended to give you ultimate satisfaction. You know how I know? Because you're going to be able to upgrade in two years. Right? Whatever satisfaction you had in that cell phone, you're going to become dissatisfied within two years and you're going to want to upgrade. The Lord Jesus Christ came into our sin-filled world. He came into our broken world in order that He might go to the cross for sinners like us. He loved us before we ever loved Him. He did not come to be served, but rather He came to serve us by giving His life as a ransom for many. According to Hebrews 12, we were His joy that drove Him to the cross that He might purchase us for God. We're here at the Christmas season. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who took no satisfaction 
in Himself, even though He was equal with God because He's God the Son. He emptied Himself of everything that He might be our perfect and beloved Savior. Go to Him. Trust in Him. Find your satisfaction in Him. In Him alone. And when you do that, your hobbies, your meals, your new dresses, smartphones, all that falls in line behind Him. Then you can enjoy those things for what they are rather than making them bigger than what they are and so dishonoring Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we look to You. We ask that You would help us to find satisfaction true joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that Your Word tells us that we can enjoy all the other things in, in this life because they are good gifts from You. But help us to enjoy them only under the Lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ who directs our lives and who has loved us and redeemed us by His own precious blood. We ask in His name. Amen.